Today's scripture reading comes from Luke chapter 1, beginning at verse 5 and going through 25 and then skipping to 57 through 80. Luke chapter 1, verses 5 through 25 and then skipping to 57 through 80. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Now we skip to Luke 1, 57 through 80, verses 57 through 80. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, And they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, 
What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. I sat there staring at this box. Christmas morning, present unwrapping. If you know my family, if you know my mother, there is no random present unwrapping in the Flintoff household. No, everything is done nice and orderly, one person at a time, wrapping paper cleaned up, move along to the next gift, and so on. I had already had what I considered as a child to be a good Christmas. But I had unwrapped this present, and I'm, I just, I can remember staring at the box, and immediately the, the, the boy inside of me just wants to go ballistic. Because the box says Atari 2600. And I'm going, it can't be. Maybe Santa is real. My parents would never buy this. And then I had that thought, maybe it's not what's in the box. Well, to my delight, what the box said was what was on the inside but there was that moment where I, I, I was going to give myself over to the joy of having an Atari 2600, but I thought, maybe this news is too good to be true. Let me verify that the system is actually in there, and I will be playing joust until my eyeballs fall out. Some of you young people are going, what? Joust? I don't even know. You've been in that moment before. Maybe it wasn't an Atari 2600, but you got news that was so amazing that after you got it, you thought, wait a second, let me verify that this is actually true because if I give myself over to the joy of this news only to find out that it's not exactly accurate or somebody's messing around with me, I'm going to be really disappointed. In the first five verses of Luke's gospel, he tells us that he is writing a eyewitness-based, orderly, historical narrative. And he's writing to a man named Theophilus, and he wants Theophilus, verse 4 tells us, to have certainty. 
And I think one of the reasons that he wants to give to Theophilus certainty is because Theophilus has heard things concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. And among many responses, I am sure that Theophilus had to this incredible news about Christ is, I'm not so sure I'm going to buy into this insanely good news until I verify that this is indeed what what has taken place? This, this word certainty is not just, um, the idea that Luke wants to, you know, beat Theophilus with facts until Theophilus can't make an argument anymore. It, it's, it's us, it's a, a confidence, an understanding. It's a belief. It's, um, as the Net Bible puts it, a, a psychological certainty that, that Theophilus would have. So that's what he desires, and it's interesting, the reason that we start there is because it's interesting that Luke would go from that being one of his main goals into this narrative that's not recorded in any of the other Gospels about the foretelling of the birth of John the Baptist. As Steve read, you might have noticed that this narrative is oozing, as it were, with echoes of the Old Testament. Now, I don't think Theophilus was a, a Jew, and I don't think Luke's primary audience is Jews. So there's a reason it's different than the Gospel of Matthew, where Matthew's writing to a primarily Jewish audience, and he just dives in and shows this connection between the Old Testament and the New Testament, between what's gone before and what's happening now with genealogies. And you've got Abraham, and you've got David, and these connections being made. But even as Luke here writes to, I think, a primarily Gentile audience, in this story, he's bringing through all of these connections with what's gone before. In fact, here's what, how I would say it this morning. I, I would say it this way, that remembering the past, that if there's an importance in remembering the past, that, that one of the things that Luke wants to do is he wants Theophilus to have this certainty, but in order to have this certainty, one of the ways that he is going to gain it is not just by understanding what's recently happened or what's going to happen, but what has happened in the past. And so you notice right from the beginning after verse 5 telling us that this is in the days of Herod, so he's rooting this in historical time and space history, he begins talking about priests. Well, obviously a Gentile would have known about priests, but, but he tells us about this priest named Zechariah, and then he tells us about his wife Elizabeth and makes this special note to tell us that Elizabeth's lineage goes all the way back to Aaron. Well, where does Aaron take us all the way back to? I'm a Gentile, I'm reading, well, who in the world is Aaron? Why do I care who Aaron is? Well, Aaron takes us all the way back to Exodus, to the first great deliverance, this Old Testament deliverance. We're told in verse 6 that these this couple, that they're both righteous and walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. So now we're bringing in these, these ideas of the law. And of course, as the story develops, here's, here's Zechariah, and he's in the temple, and he's performing this service before the Lord. And we've got, you know, temple things going on here. He's in the holy place, not the holy of holies, but just outside of that, and he's offering up incense. And lo and behold, an angel appears. Well, this, this angel, uh, it, it, this is one of the few times that we're told the name of the angel who appears, and, and Gabriel's only one of two angels that's named in the Bible, and so we get the name of this angel whose name is Gabriel. So if Theophilus is reading this, well, who in the world is Gabriel? Where does Gabriel take us to? He takes us back to the Old Testament, takes us to the book of Daniel. 
And if all of that wasn't enough, by the time you get to the, the end of Gabriel's announcement to Zechariah, you have this abundantly clear connection. Look at verse, verse 17 of chapter 1. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Now, if you hit the rewind button in your, in your Bible and just go back to the very last chapter of the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 4, if you go back there to Malachi chapter 4 and you look at the last two verses of the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, what do we read? Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with the decree of utter destruction. Well, the connection couldn't be much clearer. And of course, as we get into Zechariah and that moment of spirit-filled prophetic praise that he offers up, this whole text is saturated in the Old Testament. So even as Luke writes to a primarily Gentile audience, he is very clearly helping them to understand, Theophilus, if you're going to have certainty, here's one of the ways you're going to gain that certainty. You're going to gain that certainty by understanding all that has come before. That this, these events, the life of Christ, God taking on flesh, living among us, dying on a cross, being buried and rising again, it didn't just happen out of nowhere. But in fact, there is all of this that stretches all the way back to creation, that stretches all the way back to Adam and Eve, that stretches all the way through all of these promises. And the more you understand what has come before, the more you will have certainty about what is happening, and the more you will be able to give yourself over to the joy of this good news. Now, you and I are sitting here this morning and we're going, well, <clears throat> we just went through a series on Esther, so we've been in the Old Testament. Right? I tell you, there's a temptation I think every Advent season that at least comes to me, and maybe you can understand this, we come to the Advent and we go, okay, I've done this so many years now, and you come to Advent and you go, you know what would give me a lot of joy this Advent season? Would be to find something new, something exciting, some little detail that I've never seen before. That would really fire me up about Advent this year is if I got that Advent devotional that had this unique spin on things that I've just never seen and man, would I be overjoyed this Advent and really get into the season if I could get something new and shiny and sparkly. That would get me into it. As part of our culture, it's, it's the way we're, we lean as Americans. One of the great parts of American culture is that we're always advancing. We, can, we always think we can take something and make it better. And it has been an incredible strength to us, but the challenge is, is that we tend to be so forward-leaning, we have a hard time living in the present, much less pay attention to what's come before us. I was listening to a podcast not that long ago, and one of the podcasters was talking about visiting a church on vacation. 
And he said that he's sitting there and there's a young musician up on the stage and he's getting ready to play the next song and he introduced it this way. He said, I wrote this song over a year ago, but I think it's still relevant for today. And the podcaster was just making the point that that's our mindset. Something written a year ago needs an introduction to be, oh, I know this is a year old, but I think it's still relevant for today. Barack, here's my challenge to us this morning is that as we come to Advent, I would challenge you not to, to, I would challenge you to fight the temptation to go, God, give me something new because newness will give me joy. I would challenge you instead to say, God, marinate me in the old that I might have certainty about the things concerning Christ, his birth, his coming, his first coming. May, may, may you marinate me in that. May, may I not just be caught up in looking and looking and looking for something that's new, but rather that I would meditate upon that which is old, that which is familiar, and I would realize and I would gain certainty and that I would find there great joy. So remember that the past is relevant. The past is relevant. This story with Zechariah is such a beautiful story. And the more I've studied this passage, the more I've enjoyed it. And it has become a really, really precious text to me. Zechariah, as the text tells us, is there in the temple. And we're told that he's there by chosen by lot. This is a, a once-in-a-lifetime moment for Zechariah, literally. This, he would only do this once. He's there in that the holy place, right outside the Holy of Holies, as best I can tell, this is probably the moment where uh, coals have been brought from the altar. They've been placed on this the, the incense in the, in the bowl. And Zachariah is there by himself now. And he's going to lay the incense on top of these coals. And as that incense goes up, it's going to represent the prayers going up. It's probably evening time. That's why, as the text tells us, there are those outside who are praying. And Zachariah comes face to face with an angel. And there is this common, you know, normal, I guess, greeting. If you're an angel, you have to tell people not to freak out. And that's what Gabriel does. Zechariah, of course, the text tells us, is afraid. And Gabriel gives to Zechariah this incredible news. He says, starting in verse 13, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and, he, you shall be, and you shall call his name John, and you will have joy and gladness. Now I think if you stop there, if that was the end of Gabriel's message, John's mind is blown. Or John, Zach, Zechariah's mind is... Uh, Zechariah's mind is blown. Wait, I'm going to have a child? Right? It, it says in a very kind way, Luke describes this, he's advanced in years. Okay? So if you put yourself in the advanced in years category, I just want you to imagine Gabriel shows up at your house tonight, says, hey, winner, winner, chicken dinner. <laughs> You're going to have a child. Advanced in years. We were told specifically this isn't because they're living in sin. They're walking righteously and blamelessly before the Lord. You're going to have a child. And not only are you going to have a child, you're going to have a son. Now that would have been, for him, great joy, and that would have been enough. But that's not all of it. 
It's not just Zechariah. Listen, you're going to have a child. You're going to have a son. And he's going to be called John. He goes on to say the gladness isn't just going to be for you. The joy is not just going to be for you. But it's going to be for many who will rejoice. And why are they going to rejoice? Verse 15, for he will be great before the Lord. He is going to serve the Lord. Thus he must not drink wine or strong drink. Bummer for John, but okay. He'll be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, we got to remember, this is not after Pentecost, right? We're in the New Testament, but this is not after Pentecost. This is still Old Testament filling of the Holy Spirit, which generally happened for unique moments. The anointing of a king, the, the time when God would call a prophet, and that prophet would be anointed to speak God's message. A skilled craftsman would be anointed by the Holy Spirit to fulfill a task. But John is going to be great before the Lord, and he's called from his mother's womb. So before he's even born, he is going to have the filling of the Holy Spirit. Verse 16, And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the wise to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Now, I think Zechariah knows enough of his Old Testament to understand exactly the kind of thing that Gabriel is saying here. So not only am I going to have a child, not only am I going to have a son, but you are beginning to pull in, Gabriel, fulfillment of Old Testament promises. What you're communicating to me is overwhelming. And so in verse 18, we get Zechariah's response, and he says this in verse 18, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. Men, you can underline that. His language is important. He calls himself an old man, but his wife is just advanced in years. There's also other great marital advice in here that they don't get pregnant until Zachariah can't speak, but that's a whole other thing. The question that Zachariah asked would literally be translated, according to what? Essentially what Zachariah says is, prove it to me, give me a sign. Now, there's a debate here because Luke lines these accounts up between Zechariah and Mary. Mary's question is, how will this come to pass? It's an assumption that it's going to happen, but it's asking for clarification on how it's going to happen. That's not Zechariah's question. Zechariah's question is, according to what? Because I'm old and my wife is advanced. Right? I want a sign. Now, I love this. I'm guessing angels have personality. Because Zechariah has just attempted to inform Gabriel who he's talking to. Hey, do you know who I am? I'm an old man. Did you not recognize that? Did you show up at the wrong place? So there's this very emphatic response by Gabriel. Zechariah has dared to inform Gabriel who he is. So Zachariah, So Gabriel says, well, let me tell you who I am. I am Gabriel. Now immediately in Zechariah's mind, whoo, what, Gabriel, Daniel, what? Hold on a second here. I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and bring you this good news and behold, you will be silent and able to speak until the day that these things take place. Oh, listen, they're taking place because 
you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. So twice in that one verse, Gabriel makes clear these things are happening. He tells us what's at the root of Zechariah's question is unbelief. And so what, what happens? He, he gets a sign that is also a discipline. You want a sign, Zechariah? Here's your sign. You won't be able to talk. And I think the text is clear, and it could be translated this way. You won't be able to talk, and you won't be able to hear. Now, my parents believed in discipline, and I believed in testing my parents' resolve to discipline. I remember one moment of discipline where I was supposed to be helping my dad and I kept fidgeting around and getting distracted and wandering around and finally he got fed up with me and he pointed to a spot in the rug in the living room and he told me to stand on that spot and he made me stand on that spot for what I thought was an eternity. It turned out to only be an hour, but I thought for sure I would be available for social security by the time it was over. That was a rental house. I don't remember most of that house. I remember that spot. The duration matters. Think about this with Zechariah. The next time reference that we get is just simply verse 24 where it says, after these days his wife conceived. It's very vague. We have no idea how long that was. At least nine months probably longer, he gets this glorious sign. Not only are you not able to talk, Zechariah, but the last words you're going to hear are these words, this is going to happen in its time. Now, if Gabriel said other things, Luke doesn't record them because the scene shifts to what's going on outside of the holy place, and people begin to get a little concerned. This was all scripted and it was supposed to have kind of normal time gates and and this isn't happening normally and so they're wondering what is going on and it seems as though that moment that Gabriel spoke those words immediately Zechariah's ability to speak and his ability to hear are gone that's it it's done because he comes out and he's not able to speak and he's making gestures and signs and the, cr- the crowd concludes that he's seen a vision while he was in the temple he finishes out his time there serving verse 23 tells us and he goes home And after some period of days, Elizabeth conceives. And for five months, she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. Among people. What was that like? All of those days of silence. All of those days being unwilling, unable to speak and unable to hear. I wonder at the moment of John's birth if Zechariah wasn't hoping and tried to see, maybe I'll be able to make a noise. Maybe I'll be able to hear my son's first cry. But he can't. That wasn't the moment. There might have been terror for Zechariah thinking, maybe what Gabriel meant is, I won't be able to speak or hear until everything he spoke was fulfilled. But we're told that neighbors and relatives, they've heard. They've heard that God has shown great mercy to Elizabeth. And they come to rejoice with her on the eighth day to circumcise the child and to name the child. 
And the text tells us that they would call him Zechariah. That's what they desired to call him after his father, a very cultural thing. This was the normal way of doing things. But his mother says no. She says no, he shall be called John. Now, in between the birth of John has been a visit from Mary, and who knows what kind of conversations happen between Elizabeth and Mary and all that's going on there. Uh, who knows uh, how many tablets uh, Zachariah filled up trying to explain to his wife what's happened. But she understands, she knows, and she says, no, his name's going to be John. And, and Luke records this important note for us and says, the crowd's response is, wait a second, none of your relatives are called by this name. Not just not your husband, but none of your relatives are called by this name. And so what do they do? And this is part of the reason I think that that Zechariah was also deaf, is verse 62. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted to be, what he wanted him to be called. Notice their question. What do you want him to be called? What do you want him to be called? Right? Now they have to sign it because he can't hear. And if he can't hear, he doesn't know how his wife has responded. But they sign it to him, and I'm assuming after nine months, a year, he would have had the capacity to sign something back. But he wants to be absolutely certain about this, so he says, get me a writing tablet. They get him a writing tablet, and he writes out a full sentence. Students, don't you love those teachers? They ask a question, and it could easily be answered with one word. But they say, no, put it in a full sentence. Right? John, uh, Zachariah wants to be abundantly clear here. He gets a tablet and he writes a full sentence. And this sentence is so simple. It's just writing on a tablet, but it is a profound statement of faith. Notice what he says. His name is John. He does not answer in one way the question. He doesn't say, I want him to be called John because it wasn't up to Zechariah. He doesn't even say he will be called John once we name him. Notice the tense of the verb. What does he say? His name is John. Why? Because before he was conceived, God named him. I think what Zechariah is affirming is is obviously not just that he believes what Gabriel told him that he's going to have a son. The son was right there. I love to picture the son sitting in Zachariah's arms. And he's professing this son's name is John because God named him. But in saying his name is John, I think he's saying all of those other things that Gabriel said about this child, I believe. He's going to go before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah. He's going to be a prophet of God. I believe those things. And at that moment, at that, that statement of, of faith, writing that statement, what happens? The text tells us that immediately, verse 64, and immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed. And what does he do? How does he respond? Well, I can tell you how I responded after standing on one spot for an hour. It wasn't with praise for my father. Jeez, Dad, you're the best. I just love you. That was not my response. 
How does Zechariah respond? He blesses God. He blesses God. And then you notice in this Benedictus, Patrick, that's my Latin word for the day. It's like the only Latin word that I know. So that was, we maxed me out just then. That's what we call this, this section because it's the first, uh, the first word in the Latin of this text is Benedictus. He, he, he turns and he blesses God, right? Spirit filled, prophetic, praise to God. His mouth is opened after nine months, a year. It's finally open. And the first thing that he does is he blesses God. And here's this beautiful thing, because we don't have time to walk all the way through this. He starts out this blessing in verse 68 with what we call the prophetic aorist. It is a, a prophetic past tense, which is in a way an oxymoron. It is speaking of future things using the past tense. Do you see that? Look at verse 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for He has visited and redeemed His people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of His servant David, as He spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets from of old. What is Zechariah saying? He's saying, he's speaking past tense about future events because he is absolutely certain they are going to happen. He is rejoicing in that moment. He is importing, as it were, joy about things he knows God is going to accomplish that he hasn't yet accomplished. He's confident they're going to happen and he's rejoicing now. You have done this, Lord. And he rejoices in those. We want to get to this moment. We want to have this moment, this, this, this moment that we see here with Zachariah. We want this moment. We think about a weary world rejoicing. I don't know about you, but I think about moments like this. But listen to me. The only way that Zachariah gets here is by faith. Much of Zachariah's circumstances have not changed. He has a son now, yes, and that's incredible. But listen, much of his circumstances have not changed. Israel is still not free, right? They haven't been redeemed and set free from all of their enemies. The world is still weary, it's still broken, and yet Zechariah is now praising God. And why is he praising God? Because he is absolutely confident that all of the promises that God has made that he has yet to see, and listen, he may never see. We don't know, but how long did Zechariah live did he live to see the ministry of his son? Did he live to see the ministry of Jesus Christ? We don't know, but Zechariah was not going to wait by faith. He was rejoicing now in what was yet to come. There's another beautiful aspect of this because Zechariah gets to this faith and believing and confidence in God at what he was going to do. His faith grows, I think, and gets to this point through, through discipline. <clears throat> One of the many times that I was um, testing my parents' resolve to discipline, I was told, little boy, I was told, go to your room. You're going to get a spanking. Great words to hear. Always loved those. Right? So there I go off to my room. 
And I've got that classic. And there I am in my room. All the young people are laughing. They're like, dude, I know that. I know that cry. I'm there in my room and I, there in my room, have an amazing idea. Between all of the... I say, you know what? These spankings are going to hurt. I don't want to be hurt. And there, in the cabinet in my room, are books. I will take some of those books and I'll just put them in my pants. Then when my dad goes to spank me, he hits the books, not my bottom. Why didn't I think of this before? So I did. I called my dad this week to verify this because after a while of thinking about it, I thought, did I really do that? And he said, yeah, you really did that. I put books in my pants. Of course my dad wouldn't realize that all of a sudden I had a rather square rear end. I think the reality is that many of us would profess with our mouth the type of faith that we see Zachariah have here in this passage. We would attest to great faith in God. And yet I think many of us spiritually are walking around with books in our pants. Do you get, you get what I'm saying? Proverbs chapter 3, great, great passage of Scripture. Proverbs chapter 3, you probably know Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6 very well. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make your path straight. I hear those verses quoted a lot. What I don't hear quoted a lot are where those verses lead. To verses 11 and 12. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of His reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves. As a father, the son in whom he delights. I wonder if on Zechariah's lips were not this, this verse from Psalm 119, verse 71. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. It's easy for us to talk about having great faith in God and to say, I believe you, God, and I believe all these great things about you. But I'll tell you a really practical way that our faith in God is demonstrated is to believe that when he chooses to discipline us, we don't find that we've got books in our pants. Yeah, I believe you, Lord. You're good. You're great. Oh, these books? No, don't, don't pay attention to those. There's a joy that God has for us that is only accessed by faith. And I think there's a great challenge for you and I as we consider our faith this Advent season and in this story with Zechariah and go, am I, of course I'm not asking the Lord for discipline, but do I trust Him at that level? 
Do I believe he's good? Do I believe that if he is to bring discipline into my life, that it is only because he loves me and has my good in mind? Well, obviously there's much in this passage that we will not be able to touch on. But I want us to see this. That as Zechariah's mouth is open and he begins to profess all of these wonderful things about God and he, he lays out all of this, this rich truth, there is a purpose to it. Now, as I mentioned before, and it's important, and I would love for you to go and read this passage later and spend some time studying it. It's important to remember when you read this and you read about redeem a people and when you read the word Lord, to not read it as if this is after the resurrection. To not read it as if it's after Pentecost, okay? That's important. I know it gets confusing because we're in the New Testament, but when Zechariah is talking about this, he's talking about, when he talks about God's people, he's talking about Israel. And when he's talking about the Lord, he's talking about Yahweh. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about God visiting his people. So as we, we look through this and we consider this, he's talking about all of these great Old Testament covenants and promises coming to fulfillment. He's looking even beyond our time and he's looking to the fulfillment of all things and praising God that these things are going to be accomplished and he's looking to all of that. He even brings that out, the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant, the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant in this coming of God. But he says that this great salvation that's going to be worked out, it has a purpose. There's a purpose to it. And he tells us this purpose that is coming in verse 74. He says that this is going to happen that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him, God, without fear in holiness and blameless, blame, and holiness and righteousness before him all our days. There are echoes here of, of the Exodus, the great deliverance from the Old Testament. And so you, you, you think about that moment. Think about back to then. Think back to Moses' message to Pharaoh. Let my people go. But it was it, let them go free so they can just run around like banshees in the wilderness? I mean, they might have done that. But was that the purpose? Just let them go out there and run around, you know, let them start spray painting the pyramids. I don't know, just cut them loose. No, it was set them free that they might serve the Lord. That was the purpose of the deliverance. They were to be set free so that they could serve. And here, this great deliverance that God is working, this, this greater deliverance that God is going to work, even when all of it is fully accomplished, so speaking all the way, I think, to new heavens and new earth, when all of that is done, Zechariah is looking through all of that spirit-filled and saying, here's the purpose of it, is that we will get back to being able to serve. That's the goal. It's not that we'll get this great salvation and this great salvation, what we'll finally get is we'll get to sit on our rear ends and do nothing forever. That's not the goal. The goal is that we would fulfill the purpose for which we were created. The goal is that we would get back to what we think all the way back to the garden. We think man and woman created in God's image, placed in this garden as his image bearers so that they might what? Living in right relationship with him, with themselves, 
with one another, with his creation, they might serve. That's what they were created to do. And so here, Zechariah is filled with the Spirit and thinking about this great redemption. This is it. This salvation, what is it going to give? It's going to give the opportunity to serve without fear. Now, he doesn't see all of this in this moment, but as Luke goes on through his gospel to lay out, and of course, as he does, particularly in his second volume, to show how the Gentiles are pulled in to this great salvation, I think we find and we can, we can be reminded that this, in fact, is part of why you and I are saved. This great salvation that God has won for us, this freedom that you and I, who are believers in Christ, this great freedom that we have in Him, is not just so we can run wild in the wilderness, but it's so that we might be set free to serve. Set free to serve. I think it's easy for us to get to, you know, Advent season, it gets a little cold outside and you begin to think really good Advent season is a picture of me in my cozy pajamas with a cozy blanket and a great cup of coffee or something other than coffee if you're less spiritual and, and you're sitting there and you've got your favorite version of the Bible and there it's got all of your notes from all those years you've been hearing sermons and you're there and man the moment is spiritual, the lighting's just right, temperature's just right, the kids, who cares where they are, we're having a Jesus moment and you're just there and this is good and it's in this moment I'm going to experience all of the joy of Advent it's just going to hit me that I'm going to experience all of it right here, right now in this moment away from as many people as possible just me and Jesus I think this text reminds us of this that to experience the full joy of what Christ came to accomplish means that we need to get out and serve. Christ came, not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. And the joyous message of the gospel is that you and I no longer have to live with fear. There is no fear of condemnation for us. We don't have to earn merits before God. We have been made, uh, we have been declared righteous before Him. What is that freedom for? Well, it's not for us just to sit back and to, and to say, God, please, please make me feel happy all the time. No, that, that we're set free so that we can, so that we can serve. And I think that the, the, the testimony of Scripture is clear that we will not experience the joy that is to come to us in the wonderful salvation that Christ accomplished on our behalf if we do not engage in service, if we are not busy about serving. We have to fight this tendency because you've already seen it. The ads and the commercials, the advertising that surrounds us, what is it telling us 24-7? You will be happy if you get... You will be happy if you receive. How many commercials are telling you all of the things you deserve? I didn't know I deserved a Lexus. Was I that good? Right? Over and over again, you deserve, you'll be happy if you just sit back and people give to you or you give to yourself a new iPhone, a pair of shoes, a TV, an outfit, video games. 
You need those things. And once you have those things, once you get more of what you deserve, then you'll finally be happy. And that same mindset, while we might resist it in buying a bunch of stuff, can still come into our time and our perspective as we come to the Word of God and as we come to Advent and say, God, you need to bring me a bunch of gifts. You need to give me a bunch of stuff. I will be most satisfied. I will know true joy when you just back up the truck and dump it all on me while I sit here with my coffee and my Bible, my air conditioning, my comfy chair. And kids, shut up. And then I'll know it, but we were saved to serve. Saved to serve. Well, here's how I would sum all of these things up. I would say we need to look back. We need to take the books out of our pants. And we need to get our hands dirty. We need to look back. We need to take the books out of our pants. And we need to get our hands dirty. And I think as we do those things, we will experience, not just know, but experience a great joy, even in the midst of a weary, weary world. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you would help us to fight that tendency that we have to just desire new and exciting things. I pray that you would give us uh, sweet moments where we are able to stop and just meditate upon the rich truths of your word, this, this great redemptive history that is unfolded in your word. Remind us, Lord, remind us that you are the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Remind us that you are the God of Adam and Eve, that you are the God of Esther, that you're the God of Ruth, that you're the God of Samuel, that you're the God of, of David, that you're the God of Samson, that you're, you're the God who has worked all of these things. Remind us of that. May we marinate in that. And Lord, grow our faith. Grow our faith that as we come to this Advent season, we wouldn't just be asking um, to rejoice in what we've already seen, but that our faith would grow, that we might rejoice in things we have yet to see because we're so confident in you and in your word that it is good. Help us, Lord, even to accept your discipline if it's necessary that our faith might grow. And then, Lord, would you, by the empowerment of your spirit, get us out of our comfort zones and may we serve. It's difficult, Lord. It really is. It's been, it's always been difficult, but I, it, we just, we live in a time and things feel so divisive. And honestly, as I move out into the world, it's hard for me not to view other people immediately as some kind of threat instead of as an image bearer. It's hard for me not to want to withdraw from people I do get to know when I realize their lives are messy and broken, a lot like mine. And I go, I've got enough. I don't, I don't want yours. And I want, to, I want to pull away. But I pray, Father, that we as a church, we would, we would experience the great joy of the salvation that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ through the activity of serving. Serving one another and serving those who are not a part of this church. Serving our co-workers, serving our unsaved relatives, neighbors, friends, teammates. Serving, Lord, because of what Christ has accomplished, we're joyously free to serve. 
We don't have to serve with, with, with a desire to gain anything. We don't have to serve with a, with a need to get something in return because we have everything that we need in Christ. May we know the joy of that this Advent season. We pray all of these things for Christ's glory and in his name. Amen.